We've been in a series called ACC Is, and today is the grand finale. You made it to week five. If you're brand new, you made it for the last week. If you've been here for the whole journey, you've made it to the finish line. Uh, and I realize this has been a marathon of really deep talks. N none of these talks, I can kind of take it easy or cut them short or whatever. This, these are literally going to be some of our membership talks that people are going to watch about our church. So just know, I know that you've had week after week after week of like, man, this is a lot. Next week, I'm going to preach for like 25 minutes and just encourage you. And then we're going to take communion and sing to Jesus. It's going to be beautiful. Okay. We're, we're going to take a breath next Sunday, but not this Sunday. We're coming to the very end. And on the last week, I feel like I finally have a name for what these five things are. So I got in front of you at the beginning and I said, these five things are kind of like core values, but not really kind of like personality traits. They're things that we already are, not things that we're trying to be. So this is not a vision series about the future of our church. This is a statement of reality of, hey, this is the church that God has formed over the course of eight and a half years. And this is what it looks like for you to become a member of this church. We're going to start a more formalized membership process. But before we do that, we thought we got to communicate a clarified identity. So we said ACC is the presence of God. The plan for this church is to stay near to God. This is not a business where we're modeling some strategies or tactics for future growth. This is a, a living organism. Like it is becoming something over time. And we are learning more about where Jesus is leading us. Cloud by day, fire by night. We want to be where God is. And what matters most when we come together is not that we check the boxes, that we did everything the way we were supposed to do it. It's asking the question, did we encounter Jesus? And do we look more like him when we leave? ACC is Jesus-centered zeal. There is a fire and a passion to what is happening through this local church. And that's not an emotion that happens based on a personality. That's actually the devotion of the people of God to one another. And in the local church, we're actually intended to stir up zeal for God repeatedly. Romans talks about keep your zeal, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So it's actually godly to stay in the body of Christ and make sure, hey, if I'm not feeling connected to God, then my role is to stay connected to the body long enough to stir up passion and zeal for God once again. Countercultural formation, man, that one is deep. We talked about how no programs or Sunday services form a resilient disciple. It has to be a church-wide effort to form people into the image of Jesus over time. And if we're going to get more serious about that one, we're going to have to think through going deeper than new programs and new tactics for our Sunday gatherings, which we are as a church. And then last Sunday, tender-hearted compassion. As I preached about tender-hearted compassion, I got a little attitude with our 945 gathering, and I need to apologize for it. If you were here last week, you remember, I got, I got a little sassy with y'all. Um, I'll say it, and we use that word in my house a lot because it describes two girls who live in my house. But I was like, yeah, that was a little bit of attitude, just to clarify. Number one, I was coming off of an 8 a.m. service where they were very re re like responding constantly to the, what was happening, and then y'all weren't. So it threw me off, and yes, I was a little discouraged, but I also found out later I had strep throat last Sunday and was preaching through it. So I was, if I looked miserable, I was. I was finding joy in the Lord and the Philadelphia Eagles. That's all that was happening last Sunday. So I apologize if I came across a little snarky last week. We got our final week. Here we go. ACC is multi-generational family. Multi-generational family. Can you look at somebody next to you and say family? Family. We're going to talk about family. And it's ironic 
that this one would be last because this was the only one we were aware of when this church started eight and a half years ago. If you ask someone, what, what, what is the whole vision for ACC? It was like, oh, we don't really know, but we think we know one thing. We think we want a multi-generational church. And what we meant by that was that we're going to do church for primarily for a younger demographic in a way that all people gather together and say, yes, this is my church that I'm united in. Here, here, here's what I mean. We came at the very beginning to a college town with no college students. In fact, this is a little known fact. ACC started with two college students, one farmhouse guy and one Chi Omega girl. So those two, for that fraternity is where you can take a ton of pride in that. But that was it. We had buy-in from a few local families, which was the key to ACC sustaining over time. But the heartbeat was, yes, I, I, I was younger, still am pretty young. Uh, at least I like to think of myself as that way. But was seriously young at 25 years old when the church started. And the idea was, hey, we're not starting a college ministry. In fact, we never will. So when people ask, when is like the college thing that happens every week? Sunday? Is church? But when's like the young adult thing? That's Sunday too? Well, when's like the, no, we believe the Sunday gathering is for all generations to come together. And not, not every church is called to do that. We believed we had this like special opportunity where a 65-year-old could potentially find the sermon as applicable as a 16-year-old. The parents could have conversations with kids. And it's not that we're never going to do ministries that are specifically aimed at age groups. Obviously, we're doing that with kids. Obviously, our youth group is away on a retreat right now. We believe in moments like that. But the idea was, how amazing could it be if families bought into the idea of doing multi-generational church well? And I'm not like a church planting guru, but if I gave advice to anyone who's planting a church in a college town, my advice would be, don't aim your efforts at the campus of the university. Aim your efforts at the community you are serving. Because we had this group of families who were down for the journey. And if you've benefited or been blessed by this church, you owe a group of families a sincere thank you because they sat through a lot of terrible sermons. I mean, oh, so immature. Some of the things I said, I would watch. There's one, there's one guy I'm thinking of in particular. His name's Skip Johnston. And one time while I was preaching, I was looking at him in the eyes, and you could just tell it was paining him to listen to the next line. But he was like, in his head, I could tell he was like, it's okay. Because it's, it's not about the, the delivery being figured out from stage as much as it is about a multi-generational movement happening over time. And so what we've watched and what we dreamed up years ago is happening in real time. And now we're seeing God put more layers onto it because we're realizing the generational impact of what happens when God moves is so much deeper than one moment or one generation. I like to remind our team every Sunday that probably the most important thing happening in our church is not happening in this room. It's happening over there where there's blue shirts that say raising tiny disciples. So we, we don't think of the next generation as an afterthought. They're our first thought because this is about a generation that's going to grow up in this church and they're going to think this is normal. They're going to think it's normal for a lot of 18 to 25 year olds to be more passionate about what God's doing in their local church than they are passionate about what's happening at a local bar. That's weird. That's very weird. You're sitting in it. And they're going to grow up going, that's totally normal. That's my church. They're going to grow up thinking it's normal to be yelled at by an Italian for 50 minutes on a Sunday. <laughs> they're going to grow up watching 
people who are serious about the gospel. And the byproduct of that, we believe, is going to be a generation of resilient disciples that, that have seen church done differently, but after the fact are like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, holding on to their faith in God, even in an ever-increasing secular culture. But today is not really about the multi-generational part of it. I think that part comes natural to ACC. Today is about the word family. I want to talk about us doing church like a family and illuminate how the New Testament teaches church done interpersonally in a way that will rock you if you actually read what's written in these books. When the New Testament talks about our relationships with one another as believers, it does not talk about some friendships that need to function in a healthy way because, you know, God was so kind to us to forgive us and give us grace, and so we should actually be semi-kind to each other. No, the New Testament points to an interdependent relationship between how you and I relate to God and how you and I relate to one another. And that actually, if you're in the family of God, you're not surrounded by a few friends and acquaintances. Right now, scripturally speaking, you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. What am I saying? I'm saying the New Testament teaches that following Jesus is not about being recruited into a new belief system. It's about being adopted into a new family. You have a new family with a heavenly father who loves you. United by the power of the Holy Spirit to brothers and sisters who share in one body. This is a level of connectedness that moves well beyond common interest and likability, and yeah, I enjoy them, but don't really enjoy them. Y'all, we are a part of a body that we are supposed to be united to. And the picture you get in the New Testament is one that so few of us would actually say we think about when we think about church, but even fewer of us are actually experiencing it. I know of so few Christians that experience even a semblance of the depth of connectedness and accountability and care that is present in the New Testament church in our day. And so our temptation is to believe, well, these are, these are realities that are 2,000 years ago. I mean, it was like the story that's in the Bible. There's no way we can come close to that. But I actually believe that if you tune in to where I am going today, I'm going to lay out a gold mine that if you tap into this, it could define it could ultimately define the quality direction of your life. I believe that true wealth is measured in the depth of your relationships. That the wealthiest person in this room is the, per is the person who has the deepest, most intimate connectedness with their friends and family. And if you offered me two doors in front of me and one, behind one door, and I think everybody would agree with this, behind one door is like millions, maybe billions of dollars, like all the possessions this world has to offer. But loneliness isolation and depression. And then on this side was like lack, not necessarily poverty, but like extreme financial need, difficulty, gonna need provision to make it through every step of the way financially. But also on the other side of this door was a depth of connectedness to the people around me where there was such a like-mindedness and enjoyment of life together. There was genuine care and concern and love all around it. If you offered me, and if I offered you door number one, all the money and all the emptiness, or door number two, hey, lack and need, but everyone around you loves you and you love them, which door would you take? Number two, every single time. And yet we make it our endeavor to create a value system on the basis of an acquiring of possessions when in reality our ultimate endeavor should be how deep are the friendships that I'm fostering in my local church? 
How known am I? How much do I know others? This is the measurement of true wealth in this life. And I, just speaking for me personally, I want to be filthy rich in this area. I want to be surrounded by people who I know love me and who are seen by me. And when I'm talking about family in this one, like there is no way to take a church of 5,000 people and go, hey, everybody's your family. Like there's a sense in which we're all united. We're a part of the same body. That's great. But really today, I'm talking about the 15, 20, 30 people that you are the closest to in life. Like your inner, inner circle. I want to ask the question, are you doing life on such a deep level with Christians in your local church that your life actually mirrors what is written about in the New Testament of the Bible? I guess we should read what is in the New Testament of the Bible. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up all over the 945. Hold it up high. Hold it up. Keep it up if you're fly. Eagles fly next week. Keep it up. Hold it up if you're going chiefs. I need to see who my enemies are. Who do I need to pray for? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Somebody came up to me after the 8 a.m. gathering, no joke, and they said um, the eagles that are on Tumor's Corner were actually cut out of a building in Philadelphia where they were originally designed to represent Philadelphia eagles. I don't know how true this is. This is literally somebody coming up to me in the parking lot, but I believe it. So now every time I drive by them, that is what I'll be picturing in my mind. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12. Colossians is a beautiful letter uh, afforded to Paul by an opportunity. We actually preached through Colossians when we were going through COVID. It was relevant because Paul wanted to visit the church in Colossae but couldn't because he was in prison. So he writes this letter, and he writes it kind of as a general gospel presentation, but he also writes it to correct a heresy in the church. What is heresy? It's false teaching. And the false teaching that existed around Colossae was this thought, this way of thinking called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, that's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. I don't know why I'm spelling words in church today, but I just want you to have that in your head. And then I said G-N-O, and I thought of Girls' Night Out, and I'm, I'm confused. But Gnosticism. Gnosticism is, is the, the idea that special people have special knowledge about God. So the Gnostics would go, okay, you suffer enough to become enlightened enough, and then you want to get around a teacher who has special knowledge of God so you can know the secrets of what God's actually like. Now, that, that might sound like it's a Greco-Roman thing, but it's actually alive and well today. Anytime, y'all look up here, don't miss this. Anytime a teacher gets in front of you, either in person or through a screen, and claims to have knowledge about God outside of the authority of the scriptures, that's called Gnosticism and it's still heresy to this day. Someone goes, yeah, I know the Bible says, but I, I have this knowledge, I have this special revelation. Well, we've enlightened ourselves, and haven't we graduated and evolved, they'll use that word, to, to no, 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 that's Gnosticism, still heresy, still wrong, Paul wouldn't condone it, it's demonic, you should notice it. So Paul corrects that in the book. I just say that to protect our people. You need to watch out. You need to watch out. So Paul is correcting this belief. He shares the gospel. And then in the end of Colossians 3, he gives the practical outworking of the gospel starting in verse 12. Colossians 3, verse 12. If you're there, say I'm there. Therefore, in light of all that I just told you, look at the previous verse, but Christ is all and is in all. So good. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Stop right there. Paul is about to go in with some commands. And he says, hey, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, and you and I would be so tempted to just skip that and get to the command. Did you hear what he just said? 
He just said, that's who you are in the eyes of God if you are in Christ today. As, as who? God's chosen people. Holy, set apart, blameless, dearly loved by God. The Bible always preaches that identity precedes activity. Who you are in Christ comes before what you do for Jesus every single time. So before he gives the commands about do this, do this, do this, he goes, hey, remember who you are. Chosen by God, holy and dearly loved. How many of you honestly wake up in the morning and go, that is who I am in the eyes of God? I know it. I'm sure of it. No, what do we do? We weigh and measure ourselves on the basis of our behavior lately, our thoughts lately, and our feelings lately. I'm chosen holy me, holy and dearly loved. This is the scandal of the gospel. It is that you get to put on the identity of Christ as a child of God if you are in him. It means that you get to confidently come into church today and go, I'm one of God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, son or daughter. That is who I am. And spiritual maturity happens the more you accept that identity regardless of your behavior or feelings lately. You actually go deeper spiritually, not when you figure it out and feel more like you're that person, but when you figure out that it starts by faith, and the more I agree with God that what Jesus has done on my behalf is firm and complete, the more I will live it out. The more I believe I'm already set free, the more that freedom is mine. The more I believe I'm already called a son, the more my sonship becomes an identity I walk in. See, we've been doing this out of order. We've been doing activity into identity. What have I done? And it says who I am. But the gospel says what you did is not who you are. What Jesus did is now who you are. And you are chosen by God, holy and dearly loved. Receive it. Receive, like, let that in for a second. Long enough to go... Oh, wow. There's a moment I've been having lately in some of my times with the Lord where that will set in again. And I'm like, oh, that's right. And, and it, like, it takes my posture from being so tense and tight to so relaxed and almost laughing. Like, I forgot. It really is all forgiven. He really does see Jesus when he's, he is really not mad right now. He loves me so much. Wow. Paul wants that level of gospel clarity and identity to hit before these commands hit. So feel that. It's God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion. That word sounds familiar. It means to suffer with. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Okay. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. No, you don't feel like you are, but you are. You're so loved. You are so loved by God. Here's what you need to do. Clothe yourself with a new identity that looks like compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility. Oh, I see where this is going. Yeah. Paul goes, oh, no, you're not about to accept that kind of grace and mercy unmerited from God. You're not about to accept that and then turn around and act the same way you've always acted relationally with the people around you. Uh-uh. You're going to have to put on some new clothes because you got a new identity. You're going to suffer well with people. You're going to bear with one another. That, that one especially should tell you Paul is not talking about getting along with people you like. Do you ever have to be told to bear with people who you already like? 
just bear with them. Just like suffer well with them, compassion, like just be humble and gentle. And who, who do you struggle to be humble and gentle and kind around? People you struggle with. And, you, and Paul's going, yeah, you're, if you're going to belong to a body of believers, you're going to have to bear with some people who are actually really difficult to bear with. And you're going to have to learn to use the forgiveness God gave you as the fuel in order to forgive and love them. You're not about to take this grace and then walk out the door and treat people the way you've always treated them. And he fleshes it out more in verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the relational climate of a healthy, flourishing church body. This is what our relationship should look like, that the peace of Christ is ruling. We know that we're members of a united body. We're thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. It means that the word of God being meditated on and memorized and talked about is welling up in a spirit of thankfulness around the people of God. And it's welling up so much that when we get together, we can't help but turn it into songs and all of a sudden, our talking about the word becomes singing about the word. That's why so much of our gatherings is doing these very two things, admonishing one another, teaching and preaching, but also exalting Jesus through song. But, but it's more than songs. It's more than sermons. He ends up saying, whatever you do, just whatever, as you're doing the life that you're doing as part of this church, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, when I read these verses, I cannot help but think of the early church in the book of Acts because what is written in Acts chapter 2 about the early church is almost word for word what Paul is prescribing to be the relational climate of the church in Colossae. I want to read this, and I'm going to read it in a couple months when we get into Hamilton Road, but I've been reading this passage of Scripture about our church for eight and a half years more than any other passage. Here's what it says. You don't got to turn there. We'll put it on the screen. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together in one place and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amazing. Most common word in that passage was together. A lot's happening. They're having meals. They're preaching. They're praying. There's miracles. But they're just, they're just together all the time. And that passage says they had everything in common. When you read that, you're like, oh, this group of people had a lot of common interests. Like, they all like the same food and the same stuff, like, same clothes. Like, no, 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 no. Their commonality was not a commonality on the basis of preference. This group had a lot of different backgrounds. Their commonality was one where their unity in the spirit obliterated their disunity about peripheral things. They were so united about Jesus that that unity swelled out and caused everything else to matter less. 
Don't hear me say that there are not issues to divide on. There are, trust me. But what's happening in the early church is a picture, I think, of almost an impossible idealistic view of what it means for a church to do life well together. How many of you, when you read this passage, are like, I, I want to be a part of something like that? I used to preach it at the beginning of our church, like, this is what we could do. This is what we could do. But then when you read this and you look at the American church, or let's not just blame the American church. Let's look at our church. Is this what we're experiencing right now? Honestly. And it's, it's okay to say no, because that's the answer. <laughs> Some of you are like, can we say no? The leader's up there. No, it's okay. We're experiencing something awesome, but not this. This is like whole life investment into something. And I think some of us have gotten disillusioned by the church because what we read in the scriptures growing up compared to what we experienced was just drastically different things. Like they were living with that much unity toward one another and time together and genuine investment. And I think our hearts start to swell up like, oh, I want that. I want that for my church. And why don't we have that? Why don't we have that? But let, let, let me just say something and you need to look up here. You don't need to miss this. It's easy to romanticize the early church. It's easy to read Colossians 3 and Acts 2 and go, oh, man, they had it so good. I wish we could have what they have. Don't romanticize what they had without noticing what it costs. See, because on paper, it looks utopia, really romantic. Everybody's getting along, meals, and miracles. Everybody's cared for. Everybody's being generous. Awesome, right? Wrong. It was awful. It was hard. It was messy. It was life. Just look at what the passage actually says. Every day they continue to meet together. What does that mean? That means they were together every day, three times a day. Anybody in here looking to sign up for that level of commitment? Any, anybody going, yeah, I, I, I think we need three times a day. Some of y'all don't raise your hand. You're like, you're a little overeager. You're like, I want to come. Uh, listen, I, I, we can't just read the romantic version without noticing, hey, they have something so special because they have something we don't have. And here's what they had, three words, family level commitment. That's what they had. They were just as, if not more, committed to one another than they were to the homes they lived in. That's the type of unity they had, family level commitment. So you can read Acts 2 and Colossians 3 and point fingers at what's wrong with the church all you want. But until your commitment to your local church is able to go to the level of what it would mean to be family, you're never going to experience something like this, and neither will I. Why? I've been saying it from the beginning of our church. There is no one line I have put on our screens other than the Bible more than this line. The price of community is the sacrifice of commitment. If you want community, it costs commitment. I just want community. I just want to feel known. I just want to feel seen. I just, I, I want to get around my people and just feel like I've got people who see me and who I, hey, the level that you want that will be the level that you have to sacrifice to get that. And the cost is commitment. Why? Because the word community literally means common memory. It means you build the most amount of community with the people you have the most amount of memories with. Think about your best friend in the entire world or family that you are the closest to. What binds you to them? It's not the blood running through your veins. It's the memories experienced through your body. 
The people who you build memories with become the people that you're most fond of because you have a shared history. This is how tribes come up. This is how communities come up. And watch this. This is how churches grow in their maturity where the people are committed enough to make memories over time. I'll give you a story about this. We were one month into the church. And there was a guy twice my age who came up to me, and he had invested a lot into our church in the early days. And he said, hey, I was in for this whole ACC thing because you talked about like church like a family in Acts chapter 2, but this doesn't feel like a family. This feels like a weird service on Sunday nights at a Lutheran church. And in my head, I mean, I'm 25 years old. I'm like, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. Clearly, I'm 25. Like, do you think I really knew what was? There's a lot I wanted to say. But what I would say now at 34, if I went back to that moment, is I would say to him and I would say to myself, of course it feels that way. You're not connected to people you don't have memories with. You want to know why it feels like a weird service on a Sunday night at a Lutheran church? Well, because that's what it is right now. But if you do enough weird services, week in, week out, and you bring enough people together who are committed to a common vision of what the church is, guess what you build? Memories. And as you build a common memory, you build community. I am convinced that so many well-meaning Christians in our church want the depths of the riches of community with a surface-level commitment that will never get you there. I want that. I want, okay, you know what that cost? That costs commitment over time. That costs bearing with one another when you disagree. That costs in season and out of season when you feel like it, when you don't. That, it costs a lot because it's worth a lot. And if the price of community is the sacrifice of commitment, we have some work to do. And honestly, I just want to bring this as real as I can. The harsh reality for our church is that the vast majority of you, and this can be me as well, the vast majority of us are either too busy or too non-committal to ever experience the type of family life the New Testament church had. Way too busy and way too non-committal. The gap for us tasting this looks like sacrifice and availability. And so where we're going as a church, as we talk about membership, I've told you, it's not going to be a list of beliefs we have on a wall that you go, great, I agree with all those things. It's going to be a way of life. That way of life is going to be invasive on your current plan for your life. And I, I am waiting. I'm, I'm so ready for this moment because it's probably going to happen triple digits numbers of times. I'm ready to sit across the table from someone and tell them, honestly, you are too busy to become more like Jesus at this church. I'm so ready for that moment to just go. There's no shame in going. If Christ's likeness at this church looks like, looks like blank and your life looks like that, those, those two are never going to coexist. Now, also, let me, please let me say this. We are not thinking about adding a bunch of to-dos to your over-busy life. So if you're here going, great, being a member here is going to end up costing me this and this and this. No, actually what we have in mind looks like the simplification of your life. It's going to be deleting more stuff than it is adding. But where we're going long term, if we're going to taste life together like this, there has to be a, a priority on making a commitment to the local body you call home. Do you serve anywhere? Are you committed to a group? If you're not, and I'm actually open to people here, you don't have to be connected to a community group. You do have to do life deeply the way these verses talk about it if you want to be obedient to scripture. 
So it's not about policing who does it which way. It's about our faith family trying to do everything we can to look like what is prescribed for us in the Bible. And I'm telling you, there's gold on the back end if we're willing to sacrifice for it. Are y'all still with me on this one? I'm so ready to be done with this series. Even though I love it, I think it's great. Um, I got three family norms I want to give to you before I'm done, and then you can go eat brunch. Number one, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this at ACC? We're going to do it the way God reveals it, and we're going to do it the way we have been doing it. Number one, we're going to do it with an intentional space for vulnerability. Intentional space for vulnerability. This is my heartbeat. I love that word, intentional. At ACC, we want it to be normal to carry your burdens in community. We want it to be normal to have conversations where you reveal what you're carrying in the context of people carrying it with you. I saw this last Sunday night, getting ready for, for the last service of the day that I didn't end up preaching because I, I, I tried, but strep. And um, the, the, the scream was fine. But before I came up, our band was together with our production volunteers, and somebody stood up and said, hey, we've been serving together all day. Is anybody carrying a burden that everybody in here doesn't know about? One guy raises his hand. Yeah, I'm raising a daughter who's not my biological daughter, and it's, it's, it's great. I love her, but it's so complicated. It's so hard. If y'all could just pray for me and encourage me in that, that'd be awesome. Next guy. My sister is walking away from her faith, and I hate watching it because of what I'm experiencing here at ACC, and I just feel like if there was a church like this where she is that... And I'm, I'm, I'm carrying it. Another couple right next to them going, yeah, we just got some news about our baby medically and might have to have an early labor earlier than we thought. Can y'all be praying? This is a group that was just together for 12 hours serving in the church and probably had nothing but surface level conversation until that moment. And all that happened was an intentional space was created to let the guard down. Hey, what's really going on? And, and letting the guard down is not about emptying out your deepest, darkest secrets for everybody to see. I think there's a wise way to go about doing this. But it's about creating a culture where we are intentional toward that end. It should not be rare for you to bear your soul with people in your local church. That is no longer a, a, a like, oh, wow, foreign thing. That's so crazy. That needs to be the norm around here because people are hurting. And I, listen, I'm hurting and struggling but I have this in my life and I know so many of you do not. So I, I think you need to process burdens in community and I think you need to process deep heart level sins with like one or two people. Like you need to have a person that you go to and go, hey, this is, this is my space for confession because James says confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Part of the reason why you don't experience healing from your sin is because all you do is confess it on a mountain to God. It doesn't feel complete because it's not. God wants to use another believer speaking identity and forgiveness over you to complete the healing he's done in you. Grace plus community equals freedom. The freedom you want is not just thank you, God, for forgiving me. It's another human being looking at you in your stuff and going, I see all of that. And you are a son. You are a daughter of the living God. You are not the product of your latest inkling, thought, feeling. You can hear that a thousand times a day from Romans. But when you hear it from another believer, oh, it's so different. Because why? They're, they're a human body. 
and they're actually, this is what the New Testament teaches, they're actually being Jesus in that moment for you. That's what it means to be the body. So we got to make it normal to have those people because so many people are trapped in isolation. And I just want to tell you, if you only knew what you are missing out on, you would step into more of this. How do you create intentional space for vulnerability? Just a thought as someone who's led small groups, who leads a staff of about 45 people, who I think we do a decent job of doing this. It's, it's this simple thought. It's very practical. Vulnerability is usually the byproduct of asking the right question. Vulnerability is usually the byproduct of asking the right questions. It's learning how to handle conversations with more intentionality. Good example. You get together as a community group, and you just all listen to the same sermon the past Sunday. Terrible question. Hey, I know we were all at church. What did y'all think about Miles' sermon? Terrible question. Because you, you know what you're going to get? Surface level answers. Oh, man, it was so good. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it was so good. Man, I love when he said this. I really need to get more consistent in my quiet time. And he talked about his and that he struggles with that too. So it made me feel like I'm not alone. And like you, you'll get the same surface level, surface level, surface level. Better question. This is just an example and one that worked in our community group. Um, our community group leader got, got our group together and said, hey, Sunday, Miles talked about truth and lies. What's a lie that you're currently believing like, that really few of us would know about? And let us just speak truth into that lie. That community group time turned into a three-hour time of healing for people to say stuff and lies that they'd agreed to in their minds that they had never even thought to bring out into the light. Why did they do it? Because the question was intentional. We've got to get better, and this is, this is like church-wide, not just community groups, but just in, in like you going out to dinner with another couple. Learn to ask deeper questions than how's your week. Go to a space where it's like, hey, are you carrying anything right now? Now, also at ACC, it needs to be safe to be doing okay. I think some of y'all feel pressure when it comes to vulnerability that you're like, well, if I say I'm doing good, it'll all look fake. So I am doing good, but I feel like I got to pretend like I'm not. So everybody, like, if you're doing good, by all means, celebrate it. Rejoice with those who rejoice. You live in a broken world. Chances are you're not going to be doing very good very long. So you might as well take advantage of it while you're doing good. Go, hey, things are going great. Finances, wow. Like, God, God's good. We got to be able to rejoice with those who rejoice as much as we mourn with those who mourn. But at the same time, we've got to have a framework when our community gets together to go, hey, let's be intentional toward vulnerability. Come on this journey with us. We, we so believe in that one. That's number one. Is this helpful? Number two, hard conversations with humility. Hard conversations with humility. Healthy families do hard conversations well. Healthy families do hard conversations well. Contrary to the popular belief that if you're a healthy family, you never have hard conversations. If that's the case with your family, your family's not healthy. You are ignoring conflict. If we're going to be a healthy church family, we've got to have hard conversations with humility. This, this is one that we bring up a lot with our staff. Our staff has seven core values that we like to keep, but there's one of them that we quote more than any other one, and it's we illuminate tension. We don't eliminate tension. The idea is when there's tension in a relationship on staff, we want to shine light on it. We don't want to like stuff it in the corner because that's what we do, right? When there's a hard conversation to be had, whether it's in your community group, in your immediate family, what do you do? You avoid that person. You talk to another person about it. You stuff it into a corner and you just try to avoid it. And I have seen over time, remember, we're eight and a half years into this. If there is one extreme 
interpersonal weakness that we have as a church, it is the inability to sit down across the table from someone and have a hard, honest conversation. That is a bad weakness in our church. We would rather, and I've seen this a hundred times over, we would rather tell me or someone on staff or some of the elders, hey, uh, so-and-so made this comment in community group and I feel like it's it's theologically off or it's, it's whatever, or hey, we're not getting along with it. And, and what they really want, even though it's under the guise of we just want oversight over this. No, you really want me to have your hard conversation for you. That's what you want me to do. And what we've got to learn how to do is in real time, when you get offended, because it will happen. If we're doing life like this in close proximity, stuff's going to happen. Relational rifts will happen. When it happens, what if, just imagine this church-wide, what if our natural reaction was to immediately seek clarity from a humble posture, from the person who offended you or from the person who you may have misunderstood? What if you went straight to them instead of going straight to your friend who will become an echo chamber for your gossip? Novel idea. Like, what, what, what if you did? How fast would fires get snuffed out before they could even get started? Why? Because the enemy wants you to go to that friend who's just going to agree with you and make you feel worse about what you're going through. Instead of, hey, you said this, and I felt like you may have, I mean, I could be wrong. Or, hey, like we're doing life in close community, and I feel like there's been a betrayal here. This does not negate the need for boundaries, guys. Sometimes you do need to draw a healthy boundary with other people, and there's a wise and beneficial way of doing that, and you might need to seek counsel about that, but search your heart and go, am I approaching hard conversations with a level of humility? Now, as I preach this one, here's what I recognize. The vast majority of you lack the skills to be able to have that hard conversation because if you are not transformed by Jesus on an emotional level, you will only replicate what you saw modeled by your parents. So how do you handle conflict by default? You handle conflict however your parents handled it in their marriage. Yeah, about 98% of us were just like, oh, no, I do? Like, and, and if you have parents that handled it well, you need to give them a hug and, and buy their brunch today or something. I don't know. But, but a lot of you hearing that right now, you're like, oh, well, I got... I got some patterns I need to work out and work on. Yeah, we all do. That's why we offer things like emotionally healthy relationships here. There's already like 100 people signed up for the next one. It starts in two weeks. We're moving it into this room instead of doing it over there because so many people want to be a part of it. It teaches you, hey, you want to know why you run away when there's a conflict and a tough conversation? It's because you grew up in a home where you were told that's what you have to do to protect yourself. And you need to learn as a mature disciple of Jesus, you got to clothe yourself with humility and be able to have the maturity to sit across the table and go, hey, I know how to communicate. Why? Because humility, and we're going to talk about this next week, humility is the byproduct of being close to Jesus. And so if you're close to him, you're going to be able to carry that into your conversation that is super hard. What do we got to do? We got to have intentional space for vulnerability. We got to have hard conversations with humility. And lastly, promise I'm done. Future generations impacted by unity. Future generations impacted by unity. Jesus' prayer the night before he died was that we would be one as he and his father are one. Our unity as a church is going to be emulated by what we model for the next generation. So if you think when I talk about children of revival, that I'm just talking about kids watching us worship, or I'm just talking about growing up in a church where it's normal to preach like this, I am not. 
I'm asking the question, does the next generation of our church have a model of healthy interpersonal relationships that they can look up to us and see a model of? And deeper than that, do they have a family level commitment to the local church that they will replicate? How committed you are to doing life like this will be how committed your kids become to do life like this. If they see the discipline of time alone with God in you, they're gonna replicate it. Guess what else? If they see a heart level, man, they do, my parents, they don't do it perfectly, but they do life deeply with their friends. They carry one another's burdens. Think about if they grew up believing that that's normal on top of all this weird stuff we're doing on Sundays. You know who they might become? They might become the generation that ushers in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because they're that mature. And I, listen, I, I do not say that flippantly. I know no one knows the day or the hour, I know. But our role is to build a blameless bride of Christ. And where we, ACC, we're trying to do it well, but where we have a ton of blame on our hands right now is we have not taken responsibility for our emotional and relational health in our relationships with each other. We have to for the sake of the next generation and for the sake of your own personal freedom. So you can get your elements out for communion right now. I wanna remember the grace of God and the, the beautiful thing about communion as we take it is that the picture we have in the New Testament is a table. If you didn't get one, you can just raise your hand. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, you can just throw that under your seat. No worries at all, it's a time to reflect. And as you raise your hand, our team will, will bring him to you. But let's remember that all are invited to the table. Let's remember the grace and the mercy given to us by the body and the blood. Husbands, pray over your wives. Take this time to just sit in the presence of God. We'll sing in just one second. Heavenly Father, I pray as we remember you that you would be moving in this space. God, I just said a lot and I trust you to download it for each age, stage, and situation that's within the sound of my voice. Use our relationships with one another for your glory. Do something new in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.